You're listening to Gillian's episode, a daughter with infant leukemia on the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. She's doing really well. Um, She has this tenacity to just overcome anything that's thrown at her. She's having so much fun at school and so much fun being able to really run around and keep up with the kids. And you would just never know it to see her that she's had all of these really intense struggles in life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. I am so happy that you are here today. Whether you are a parent of a child with an illness, or you are a child life specialist, or you are in the medical field trying to learn more about the parent and patient perspective, I'm just so thrilled that you are here and listening to these important stories And the truth is that when a child is sick or has an illness, it's not just the child who suffers. It really is the parents who are there tirelessly and endlessly and are worrying. It's the brothers and the sisters. It's the grandparents and the loved ones. And so this is just a real safe space where people can come in and share their stories. Today, we will hear from Gillian, who is a mama to four. Her kids all range in age from 6 to 12. She and her husband, Luis, live on an acre of land, and they have their own little zoo of 18 animals and are a close-knit, hybrid homeschool family. Over the next hour, you will hear Gillian describe her personal journey that includes a cancer diagnosis for her infant daughter and a life-altering accident that happened a year after she finished chemotherapy. She shares her own personal struggles in coping and how she sought medical help herself. She'll describe how meeting another mom whose life paralleled hers turned into a lifelong friendship and a special bond that will stay with her forever. These two moms connected through humor, and they've also started a podcast called For Grits and Giggles to talk about their ups and downs. And I, you have to listen to this podcast. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. You will feel like you are sitting in the room with them. So without further ado, I want to get started and hear from Gillian. Yeah, my little Violet... He is six now. Um, our story with Violet is that she, um, she was, she was what I thought was going to be our easiest, our most natural baby. We, I didn't have an epidural finally with her. I had a doula. We did everything organic and 
um, she just was not real happy for a few months. And I mentioned it to her doctors. Um, we had kind of fallen into this little gap where she wasn't due to be seen by her actual physician. She was just going in for her little booster shots. So I mentioned to the nurses that she just, she was fussier than the other babies. Um, when we did see the pediatrician, he thought that maybe she had a little separation anxiety, um, cause that can happen, you know, around six months or so. Um, when, when I realized though that she was getting sicker, m- more sick more often, and she also was just taking so long to get well. It felt like she was just constantly sick because she would take longer to get better. And then by the time she got better, it felt like she was hit with something else. And I, you know, I do have four kids. They were all little at the time and they were in public school. So it was, it was pretty typical for us to have colds and things all the time, but she just wasn't, wasn't a happy camper for a little while there. Um, and for a while, everybody kept thinking, well, this is the one hard baby that you have, you know, you've had it so easy with the other three and she's just her own little person and doesn't like to be put down very much. But I started to realize that there really was something wrong. Um, one of the things that we realized was she would want to go to sleep. She would be so tired and she would try to nurse to go to sleep. And then the second that we laid her flat, she would just scream and scream and scream. And we'd just start the process all over again. And what we know now is that her little body was fighting so hard. Um, the reason that she was screaming when she laid down was that she, um, she had acid reflux. And that was from the fact that it turned out that she had uh, infant leukemia. So I had, um, we had actually been to the, even the emergency room a few times. And I, I was told that I was tired, that my husband was um, out of town more at the time and that she was just our tricky baby. And that went on for a while. So I would say that she was probably sick before she was diagnosed for at least two to three months. The way that we actually found out about her diagnosis was she was due for her nine month vaccinations and we took her in and we did, we told her nurse again and that she hadn't been feeling very well, but at that time she didn't, um, she met the criteria for her vaccinations. She didn't have a fever. She, she was okay at the time. Um, so they did her vaccinations and that was on a Friday and we went home and it was actually my husband and I's anniversary. We were supposed to go away or I think just for an overnight, um, for the first time since having all four kids. And, um, she was just miserable. We, we just had to t- take turns rocking her. We could not put her down. She was. Uh, just she would go back and forth between being lethargic and just screaming out of control. Um, so we ended up we 
waited out the weekend and I called the doctor's office on Monday and I said, you know, she's looking a little yellow to me. She looks a little jaundice and I our sweet triage nurse who she's actually been there at the pediatrician since I was a baby. Um, Violet's pediatrician at the time before he retired was actually my pediatrician. So I know them well. And I knew the second that I said that she was looking jaundice, that it wasn't a side effect from the vaccines. Um, it, it just, they instantly, they knew something was wrong and um, they said, you need to bring her in right away. We were, um, we're a, an hour away from Santa Barbara. So we took her down there, went to the doctor's office. My husband met me there and they just saw right away that something was wrong. Um, my pediatrician went and got a colleague to see if maybe she could give a second opinion. And they, they originally end up, ended up saying that we needed to go to the hospital right away. Um, they did a little finger, finger prick and her blood was not looking like it should. Um, what they initially thought was maybe she had meningitis. So we went to the hospital. Um, it was just probably a five minute car ride to the, um, children's hospital and that time was just a whirlwind. I, I remember, I remember most of it, but it's weird that, um, now that I, I can see now that I was definitely removed from the situation and just trying to get through it and telling them what we had been experiencing the last few months. And, um, they just, there was so much, um, blood draw and IVs and, they had originally sent us there to have a spinal tap, but when they checked her blood, her hemoglobin was so low that they, they didn't feel comfortable. It wasn't safe to do a spinal tap. So we ended up being admitted and they had told us at that time that she either had a, um, uh, some type of cancer or a serious bone infection. And they did say that either of those options would require chemo. So we met with multiple doctors. Um, she had quite a big team. She had her pediatrician was still kind of on board. Um, we had the uh, children's oncologist, the pediatric oncologist. I remember um, the hospital doors open. I had all of my girlfriends around me. And I saw Violet's pee and he, he came in, um, he didn't have hospital privileges on the unit. He was delivering a baby, I think, or doing a baby check, a well baby check in the uh, maternity ward. And he came in and I looked at his face and I waved at him and I instantly knew, um, he just, he looked so sad. And that is, that memory is just burned into my brain. Um, he was always such the comforter and he was so sweet and kind and it was so hard to see him feeling so sad for our family. Um, and he just kind of disappeared behind the, the counter at the nurse's station and immediately started talking to our oncologist. So I knew and I told my girlfriends I knew and, um, we waited around for a while and a few of the nurses came in and asked if my husband was going to be back soon. He had gone up to our house an hour away 
um, to get some things. And um, they kind of kept asking, you know, have you talked to Luis recently? Is he going to be back anytime soon? And finally, I talked to my girlfriends and I went up to the nurse's station and I just said, you know, we can't wait anymore. I already know the answer. We don't want to wait for Luis to come back. You know, he's okay with me finding out first. And that's when the oncologist did come in and give us her diagnosis, um, which was infant leukemia. Um, hers was pre B cell. So, um, you know, with air quotes, I say that she, we were told she had the good kind of cancer, um, because ultimately in her case, she had a 90% survival rate. Wow. So, I mean, how does it feel when somebody tells you that your daughter has the good kind of cancer? It must just be like so confusing. It really was. And for some reason, all my brain could say was, are my other children okay? I have no idea why I went there, but I was just stuck on repeat with that. And I don't know if I thought maybe like because it was the good kind, maybe the other kids, you know, it ran in the family or I don't know. But that was I just remember being stuck there until the oncologist said, no, your your other kids are fine. Um, and then I kind of went to the like denial phase. It was it was such a strange feeling because I knew something had been wrong for so long and we fought, fought, fought to try to figure out what was happening. And then once we were told, I, I kind of went into that. Mm, no, let's take that back. That's that. Never mind. I think maybe she has something else. And I remember talking to the oncologist about um, a hereditary disease that runs in our family and um, when my uncle was actually 16, they thought that he had leukemia, but it was actually this other um, disease that runs in the family. So the doctor finally looked at me and said, she might have that, but she also she does have cancer. So right now we need to work on the leukemia and, you know, we'll do all the other tests to see if she needs any additional help. And so I guess Luis wasn't even there yet. So did you have to call him and tell him? I did. Um, I called him and I tried the, you know, are you on the road yet? And he was still at home and he knew right away. He said, you, you just need to tell me. And I said, well, why don't you come down here? And he said, no, you need, you just need to tell me. So I told him over the phone and it was awful. It was awful not being able to, you know, console him at the time. I felt terrible about that. I had all of my girlfriends with me and he was up at our house by himself an hour away. So that was just bad, bad timing, I guess. I'm sure it's hard to go back and think about that and relive all this. It is. I, I do suffer from PTSD um, with everything that Violet went through, um, a lot of her complications, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It just it's hard. It's hard to go back. And every once in a while, I just feel kind of disassociated when I talk about it too much. But for the most part, I'm I'm in a good place and it's good to go back and kind of each time I talk about her story and her diagnosis, I remember other bits and pieces. And that's been 
helpful in a way even to kind of just remember more now that I, that we're kind of past the most frightening stage. I'm able to remember little things that happened in the hospital or basically just her babyhood. Um, She was there for so long that every once in a while we'll remember these little things and we can finally, you know, laugh and remember her good little babyhood, even though it wasn't the best of circumstances. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I guess for those of us who don't know exactly what uh, infant ALL is, would you mind giving us kind of a a little bit of an understanding? So basically it's um, infant leukemia. Um, Leukemia is actually one of the more, um, I don't want to say popular, that's a terrible word, but one of the more common um, childhood cancers. And um, the reason that they categorize hers as infant, um, any baby under 12 months is considered infant leukemia. And the reason that they do that is because the treatment is slightly different for each um, kind of subgroup of leukemias. Um, This is also so why we are considered to have the good type, um, because hers uh, was not, it, it's not in our family. There are actually types of leukemia that um, have genetic markers, and she did not. Um, but just because she was only 10 months old, she did fall into the um, infant category. And the way that we were explained um, what was going to happen was that she would have um a more intense treatment. Um, they keep the babies in the hospital for the majority of chemo. Uh, and that's because uh, the babies get too sick too quick is how um, our oncologist worded it for us. And that's, I mean, for obvious reasons, they can't tell you how they're feeling and um, their little bodies just when things do hit, it, it happens quite quite frequently at a really um, intense rate. Um, So we were inpatient for a lot of her treatment. The beginning, um, we went in at the, in the middle of June and we tried to come home for her first birthday in August, uh, August 18th is her birthday. And we lasted all of, 24 hours, maybe a little less than that because she was just miserable and we tried to put her little dress on and, and do something fun, but she just, she needed the extra support from, um, mostly the medications that she was on. Um, they were much more affected in an, effective in an IV form or she actually had a little portacath that her medicine went into. So we went back in and um, I think we were there for a total of three months aside from that little 24 hour stay at home. Um, and then after the three months, we were able to come home and um, for the most part, she did like a, a few weeks on um, and then a few a week off at home. And the week off at home, you would think that it would be a little break, but those are actually the steroid weeks. So we would have this little baby who was, we lovingly called it roid rage. Um, it's a 
It was awful. She just wanted to eat all the time, but then she would have acid reflux and it was, it was just crazy. We were, we literally, my husband and I would, um, just stay up taking turns, holding her upright and rocking her at night. And, uh, we did that off and on. Um, that was two years of treatment. So it was, it was a long haul. Um, she never had to have any, um, bone marrow transplant or radiation. So hers was strictly chemo. Did she have any side effects that developed while she was in the hospital? She did. Um, when she was, uh, I, I think that it was around 18 months. Um, we had, she, we'd gone home after a round of chemo and I noticed that things were just a little different. Um, her hands and her feet were peeling and driving her crazy. And she was just, it seemed like she had a virus, a little, you know, a little cold or something. And we ran up by the oncologist and he said, no, I, I think she's just a little more miserable because, um, you know, she's, she's had so much chemo and collectively it's probably, um, getting more intense for her. And, um, I should have gone with my gut instinct and just refused chemo. But along with that comes a whole slew of other complications. Um, the state doesn't really love that you would try to uh, withhold chemo from, from a baby because we did have a 90% cure rate. Um, so I, I know that we could have fought a little harder, um, but I just didn't have the knowledge at that time. Um, what we ended up uh, doing was going in and having her high dose chemo and she got very sick. Um, there were four days of having a fever of 106.8. At one point, it was clear that she had something more serious going on. And we had every doctor in the hospital, it seemed like, came in. Her surgeon came in, all of uh, her pediatrician, all of these doctors who just wanted the best for her and could not figure out what was going on. Um, one of the things that kept happening was she would get these little sores and um, they would, every time her fever would spike, it was almost like a, a burn would appear. The The little bumps would spread and they would blister and then eventually pop. And her, so from head to toe, she, she looked truly like she was a burn victim. And we just, we had no idea what was going on at that time. For some reason, our hospital didn't have a, a dermatologist for peds. So I ended up out of desperation calling our pediatrician and he actually brought in a dermatologist just as a guest. He had like a visitor patch on. <laughs> the dermatologist said, you know, I, I mean, I think this is just a really serious a typical version of Coxsackie virus, which is hand, foot, and mouth. Very typical childhood illness. Um, usually kids get sores on their hands, their feet, and in their mouth. And it's uncomfortable, but it usually does not require any sort of medical intervention. 
But when you have a baby on high dose chemo, they don't have any immune system left to fight off anything else. Their body is working so hard on fighting cancer. They stopped chemo, obviously, and we just kind of had to wait it out and see how it went. We were trying to do the best we could to keep her as comfortable as possible. And just when we were thinking that we were um, going in the right direction, she, um, her fevers were down. They had even talked about possibly letting us go home. Um, she had to be fever free for 24 hours. And just when we thought that we were in the clear, she, um, I was laying with her and I heard the biggest explosion that I had ever heard from a baby. And so I got up to change her diaper. I mean, obviously we had a lot of, a lot of poop and a lot of vomit from chemo, but it was, it was, it seemed different. And I got up to change her and I laid her down and she, I had taken her diaper off and was wiping her and she immediately started just vomiting everywhere. So I was trying to hold her up so that she didn't choke while trying not to get feces everywhere. And I could not reach the nurse call button. And that is part of where my PTSD comes into play. Just that moment of being completely helpless and not being able to do anything for her, not being able to call out for help. It was, that was an awful, awful feeling. Um, Thankfully, one of our nurses was supplying the stock room next door and she had heard something in our room and it was actually me trying to kick the emergency nurse button that was on this panel in the room. And she came in and she had her arms full of sterile flushes for IVs and she immediately um, said, oh, no, she's seizing which I didn't know at the time. Um, I had only seen seizures, you know, mostly on TV. And um, what I know now is that a lot of the times a sign of a seizure is that they get very still. They're unable to move. And so she was completely stiff. She wasn't moving at all. And uh, our nurse called out for the emergency um, team from the pediatric intensive care unit. So all of the nurses, all of the the head nurse, the director, everybody came in and was just trying to help. Um, her oncologist came down and I just remember moving pieces of furniture out of the way and taking these flushes from the nurse at some point. So I had handfuls of flushes and I'm kicking footstools out of the way. And our oncologist, we just wasn't expecting to find that. So he just kept saying her name over and over, hoping that she would respond in some way. And she she just wasn't in it. At that time, she had started to really have a, a visible seizure, a more typical shaking and just convulsing. Um, and they 
ended up, um, they needed to make sure that she was still breathing. So they, um, put her on a gurney to get ready to go down to, um, have her, her brain scanned because they needed to make sure that she wasn't having a brain bleed or anything at that time. And again, I had to try to call my husband and let him know that this was happening. And I remember being on the phone with his, um, the security department at his work. And, um, I said, I, I can't get a hold of my husband. Um, you know, please go find, uh, a friend of ours or one of our best family friends, go find him and have him drive him to the hospital. And I just kept saying that over and over and over. And this poor security guard, I, I, I also, I have this knack for feeling bad for other people in our crisis. And, I just remember um, having the phone up to my ear and hearing her medical team say, I don't know if she's breathing. And they were all trying to figure out if they needed to bag her or what they needed to do. And so I just start screaming, is she breathing? And the security guard on the other end of the telephone was just, she was devastated. I mean, she, I didn't know that she knew uh, what was going on with our family. Um, so I think at some point I ended up hanging up on her because I wasn't sure what Violet status was and, um, she was breathing. They did, they didn't have to intubate at that point or anything. Um, and they, they ended up getting her stable and taking her down and doing the MRI and, um, I at some somehow Luis got the message to come down to the hospital and it it was I think that was a moment of what I know now was disassociation um where my my mind just couldn't handle all of that so I just decided to well I'm going to be helpful I'm going to clean up our room because we're being transferred over to the pediatric ICU so I'm doing all of this stuff and Luis comes in and he's just hysterical and, and I just, I hugged him, but I just, it was like I was out of my own body. It was such a strange experience. Um, and then we had, we waited a little while and they brought her back in and she did have, um, her little oxygen mask on and she was not awake yet at that point. Um, but I think it was probably within, I would say, probably an hour or two that um, she did wake up. They they sedated her for the uh, Im- the imaging, um, and they when they brought her back up, she was so cute. We have this little video of her. Um, she Louise is leaning over her little crib in the PICU and. She's got her little oxygen on and she realizes that Luis is there and she just gives the biggest smile and just it's obvious that she, you know, she recognizes him. And I don't think she had a clue that anything had happened, really. And then for some reason, well, probably we know with Violet, for some reason, some of the medication that normally calms people down like out of van um for some reason with her it'll work for maybe 15 minutes and then it does the absolute opposite so oh, that's horrible yes 
So she was up a little bit and she was blowing kisses and she just didn't understand why, you know, why she had all these leads on and everything. That stay, we ended up um, having to be in the PICU for, I think it was about a week. And they, they still couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Her blood pressure kept spiking and, um, there was just, I remember there being such a different, um, energy at that time because we're not only dealing with her oncology team, but they pretty much have to hand the reins over to the intensivists, um, in the hospital because at that point it's not, the priority is not fighting cancer, but the priority is saving her life. So there were a lot of times that they would do rounds and it seemed like there were 20 people outside all, all having a slightly different opinion on what the next best course of care was for her. And, um, there was some confusion between the high blood pressure spikes. A lot of the time the, the doctors were thinking that it was just because she was so uncomfortable and in so much pain that when we had to change a diaper or move her around, they were thinking that that pain basically was what was causing her high blood pressure spikes. But thankfully we had a night nurse that we had had for more than one night in a row. And she was tracking her trends and realized that she was sound asleep and she was still having these blood pressure spikes. So thankfully at that point, it was decided that she would be put on uh, a blood pressure medication to make sure that she didn't essentially it was to prevent strokes. Um, but what we do know now is that most likely in that period of time, between being scanned and between um, starting the blood pressure medication, she most likely did have little strokes in there. Um, it, we also ended up, there was just a little time period where her body was just going through too much and the doctors were arguing back and forth whether they should put her on um, TPN, which is like they lovingly call it steak in a bag. And <laughs> You know, the oncologist is thinking about long-term side effects and the internist is thinking about, you know, this moment right now to, to keep her alive. And, um, those were unsettling, you know, feelings of, oh my gosh, it's, it's the one time that her medical team is having, um, differences of opinions. And that was, that was just so hard, but they did, they ended up coming up with a plan. She did have, um, the TPN. And, um, and that just gave her body a little break from having to eat or do anything extra. And so between the artificial nutrition and she was on an anti-seizure medication and she was also on the high blood pressure medication, that finally, that combination allowed her to just work on healing and she was able to transfer from the PICU over to the, the regular pediatrics floor again. It was around um, between Halloween and Thanksgiving. So our goal at that time was to try to get her home for Thanksgiving. And I do remember I have pictures somewhere of um, 
I didn't know how I was going to keep all of these medications on board 24-7 at home. Even in the hospital, I was always really um, attentive to what she was on just so that I kind of could keep that cycle at home. And the doctor walked in one day and said, wow, I've never seen that before. But we had taken the dry erase marker and put all of her medications up on the windows. And the doctor came in and he goes, it's interesting to see it written out like that. <laughs> you know, I think she, I'm pretty sure it was 19 medications that she was on. It was a struggle to go home. Obviously, we wanted to be home and we wanted her to be around her siblings. But it was always hard on on Luis and I because we had to be not only the parents of all the kids, but also the nurses. And um, we were so grateful to go home for Thanksgiving. And she was just starting to really her skin was still awful, um, but she was starting to perk up and she did. She loved being home for Thanksgiving. Over the next year, Violet and her parents went back and forth from the hospital. And right around the age of two, Gillian began to share her concerns with the medical team about some of Violet's delayed motor skills. And they said, oh, it's, you know, kids on chemo, they have delays, they've been in the hospital, they've been catered to, you know, it's typical, it's it's not abnormal. I remember at one point putting Violet down in her oncology clinic, which is the outpatient um, oncology office. And um, her oncologist was kind of trying to say that, oh, she's just probably like accustomed to being carried everywhere. And I asked her, Violet, do you want to get down? And she said, yeah. So I put her down and I said, go, go walk with the doctor, take him on a walk. So she walked him out, you know, she's holding his hand and then she, she asks, she turns back to me and asks, you know, if she can go to the parking lot. I said, well, you can try it. So they go over to the staircase and instead of just picking up her hand and using the railing on the left hand side, she got down on her little booty, scooted around her doctor to go to the other side of the wall, the staircase, so that she could use her left hand to hold on to him and her right hand to hold on to the railing. And the look on his face when he realized, oh, she she really wants to walk down these stairs. And he was so funny. He turned from, you know, oncologist that that was just sure she didn't have a problem to, oh, Oh, Violet. Oh, I don't know if we should go down the stairs. Oh, no. Oh, oh. And he was so nervous. He finally realized, oh, she wants to do this so bad. And there's just a little something holding her back. So between that, he agreed to, you know, to look into it further. During their next hospitalization, which was during maintenance, a lower dose chemo treatment, Violet's other oncologist brought up the idea of completing a scan to take a look at her bone structure and quickly realized what Gillian had been sharing concerns about for a while. And as he's talking, she we're sitting on the little parent couch, Violet and I, and at that time she would take her steroids or whatever medicines she had with a little tiny bit of coffee because it would, the steroids 
go bitter that that was one of the only things that would kind of mask the taste. So she's sitting there having her little tiny cup of coffee and there's a, I think I had gotten a muffin or something and she was asking for it. She was pointing at it and, you know, signaling that she wanted it. So I said, yeah, go ahead. And instead of just using her left hand to reach for it, she scooted her little body all the way around so that she could use her right hand. And our oncologist said, why did she do that? And I said, I'm telling you, there's something, something is off. Something's not quite right. And he said, I didn't realize that she was, you know, using alternative ways to get what she wanted. I thought that she just wasn't walking yet. I said, no, it's much more than that. So they had the orthopedic surgeon come in and do x-rays and take a look at her and they couldn't find anything structurally um, in her skeletal system, um, anything wrong except for the fact that she had uh, basically medicine-induced osteoporosis. But when it's in children, uh, most of the time the bone marrow can help repair the the uh, strength of the bones. So uh, they said, you know, that shouldn't be what's causing this. So we ended up going down to UCLA um, to get a second opinion. And at that time, um, her neurologist realized um, that she had very mild cerebral palsy. And that was most likely caused from those little um, undetected strokes during her illness. So we then had to, um, you know, she was still doing chemo, but we then had to figure out how we were going to just best provide um, ways for her to learn to walk and learn to do all the things that all, you know, kids do um, just in different ways. So I do remember that we got her a little, a little dog. His name is Jackson. He's a little terrier. And because what we realized is anytime that she saw a dog, she would want to walk it. And she kept trying to walk our 70 pound uh, white boxer and that wasn't working out very well. <laughs> so we got Jackson. And we have it on video. It's the cutest little thing. If she had his leash, she would just be so much more stable than when she didn't. And her first few real steps um, were walking Jackson. And he was so sweet. He knew he knew not to ever tug on the leash or ever go, you know, ahead of her. And she just, I think that a lot of that actually has to do with the fact that there are therapy dogs in the hospital that come in and visit all the kids. So that was kind of her, her little comfort zone, I think. So Violet began doing physical therapy and occupational therapy and accomplished so much like learning to climb up the stairs and tie her shoes and At this point, when I was talking to Gillian, I truly felt like, wow, this little girl and her family have been through so much at her short little life, like getting diagnosed at 10 months old. So I was completely shocked when the story did not stop there. And she talked to me about this life-changing accident that happened on the year anniversary of finishing chemo. We took her to the movie theater 
which we'd never been able to do with her because kids on chemo have such low immune systems. The movie theater is like one of the big no-nos. So we ended up trying to go to see Finding Dory to celebrate. And uh, we went with friends up to the mall, saw the movie. Um, she she had kind of a love-hate relationship with Finding Dory because it was very loud. But she loved the movie. So she spent a, a majority of the time holding her hands over her ears, but also laughing like crazy. And when we left the movie theater, um, my friend's daughter wanted to go into a clothing store. So we went in there and the kids were kind of playing among the racks of clothing. And um, when we went up to pay, uh, she was used to the round racks and she backed up to kind of hide in between the clothes on a display rack right next to the register. And she didn't realize that the, um, the bar that makes the rack stable was directly behind her knees and she lost her balance and just went completely backwards and she hit her head on, it was a concrete floor. And at the time we, there was no blood, no vomiting, no loss of consciousness. I've had kids with head trauma that I definitely would have thought, that, you know, they for sure had something wrong, but, um, she just didn't have any of the signs at that time. We, uh, took her out and got her ice and, um, she seemed okay. Uh, we put her in the car and we drove home. She fell asleep, but it was her bedtime anyway. So that didn't seem abnormal, but the next morning she woke up and she kept telling us that her throat hurt and we couldn't figure out why her throat hurt did you know are you stuffy do you think you have a cold what's going on and she just kept saying no my throat hurts but what we realized is she was she was holding on to her neck and her neck hurt and so I had a workshop to go to and I was really hesitant to go but my husband said you know go ahead go Uh, I'll call you if we need anything at all so I went to my workshop and um checked in when it was done. Um, it was a little bit away from our house and, um, I checked in and my husband said, she's napping. And I said, well, that's unusual because they, the kids had a friend over. She normally doesn't nap. She's napping and her head hurt a few times. So I thought, oh, that's not good. Maybe we should go to the doctor. I came home By the time I got home, Violet was sitting on the couch. She was rocking back and forth and holding onto her head and just, just, she was in agony. So I put her in the car to take her to the hospital and she ended up vomiting all over. And I knew that that, those were just not good signs. So we again went to the hospital. Um, we went to the one that was nearer to us and, um, they, did imaging and they said, you know, you were right to bring her in. She has a brain bleed. We ended up um, going by ambulance from San Inez down to UCLA. They, they redid imaging. They found that she not only had a brain bleed, but when she had fallen, she actually had a skull fracture as well. So we were in there. I think she was in there for about, about four or five days. Um, they monitored her. They, um, 
checked for any seizure activity. They did put her on an anti-seizure medication just to, to make sure that she was covered. She, she was on the road to just her, her head and brain healing itself. So we were sent home, um, being told that we needed to keep her as calm as possible for eight weeks. And of course, it was the very beginning of summer. (laughs) And it was that, oh, no, we want to be home so badly. But also, how are we going to do this? So four kids at home trying to be calm for the majority of summer. The second that we, you know, we carry Violet in, we set her down on the um, living room floor with pillows and everything. And we're trying to unload the car. And we've already explained to all the kids, you know, she needs to stay calm. We're going to watch movies. It'll be fun. Um, and the first thing that I hear as I'm walking Violet's medication bag into the house is, Violet, do you want to do somersaults? And it was trying to help Violet do a night, you know, immediately screamed, no, and ran over there. And uh, we, long story short, we spent that summer in a inflatable kiddie pool without water and a helmet. So that was quite a time. You know, this little girl has had chemo, um, which can cause learning disabilities. She's had a brain bleed. She has cerebral palsy. So um, with all of that, we were told that she basically has, she has some processing issues. And she also has what they're referring to as a, a blind spot, but not ne- necessarily with her vision. Um, it's like a blind spot in the upper left when her eyes look up and left. Um, she can't process what she's seeing when she looks there. She can tell you what she's seeing, but she can't process um, any information, really, if that makes any sense. Um, so if she were like if there were a stop sign to her upper left side, she might not, she would tell you it's a stop sign, but her brain might not tell her to stop. I, you've talked a little bit about, um, other families that you have met, um, and what they have done for you and how they've been supportive of you. And actually one of them has become not only your friend, but a a podcast host with you. Yes. Yeah. We've met quite a few families in treatment and, um, when I was in the beginning of Violet's treatment, I just didn't have, you know, some of the advice that was given to us didn't, it just couldn't really apply because we had three other young kids at home and uh, we were an hour away from our hospital, you know, all these little extra hurdles that we had. And I was telling um one of our nurses that one day and she said, you know what? There's another mom. She has four kids. They're all your kids' ages, and you would just love her. You guys have the same style. Um, you have, you know, you're just, you have so much in common. So um, that is when we were put in touch with the Hammersley family. Um, Hazel Hammersley 
was um, she was in treatment at the same time as Violet, different hospitals, but at the same time she was two. Hazel and Violet, they just connected. They they were just so cute together in all of their little, their, you know, they got to meet a few times and they um, watched each other's uh, little pages and um, social media was actually, it was quite sweet to see kids forming these little bonds over a computer. So Hazel actually ended up relapsing not once but twice. And Sadie, we lost her this time last year. And um, she was seven. And that's that it was it was hard for so many reasons. It was hard to watch my friend lose her daughter. It was hard for Violet to lose a friend. Um, you know, there that just that sense of helplessness was awful. And um, Lauren and I grew pretty close over that time. And I just, there was no, there was nothing else that I could do except for just keep showing up. And, um, not trying to talk her out of her grief, just sitting with her as she went through it. And we were both having a really hard time. I ended up actually going to get some help this summer. Um, I ended up going into our, um, they have like a, a psychiatric unit within our hospital. And I did stay there for nine days and, Lauren helped to get me in there of all things. She's grieving her daughter and she helped to take care of me. And we were just trying to think of ways to help other families. And I learned some great skills um, when I was in the hospital and Lauren was going through a lot of the same issues, but obviously times a million. Um, and so the two of us just had this ongoing, um, Facebook message and we would just text each other or Facebook message, just the most random things that we could think of to make each other laugh. And sometimes it's like, Hey, are you up? Even though it's two 30 in the morning, can I call you? And sometimes it was just ridiculous threads of none of neither of us making sense but just laughing um and that was the thing it's it's hard to know what to do with a friend you know it's hard to make jokes when it's such a serious situation but at the end of the day that is what our friendship basically we've always done that with each other our girls were in the ICU at the same time. We just, we've really related and been able to survive with, with humor. And, and our girls are that way. You know, if they can laugh while receiving chemo, then who are we to say that's wrong? So she and I have started a podcast. We went back and forth on, you know, what, what should we call this? And we came up with this one was Lauren's idea was for grits and giggles. And um, we just took it and ran with it. We have no idea what we're doing. I had only listened to one podcast before starting this. Um, so it's been a learning experience and it's been fun and hard and heartbreaking and joyful all at the same time. I will just piggyback on what Gillian is saying. 
Each episode is so heartfelt and I have laughed and cried like I told you before in each episode that I've listened to. If you would like to listen to their podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or you can go directly to their website, www.forgritsandgiggles.com. If you'd like to follow along with Violet's story, you can follow them along on Instagram at victory underscore four underscore Violet. Thank you so much to Gillian for reliving all that you have experienced during Violet's life and your perspective as well on what you went through personally. Using your words, she has so much tenacity and she truly is so lucky to have you as her mom to love her, to fight for her, and to be her advocate. Please rate and review this podcast, Child Life on Call, on iTunes so that other parents and listeners can listen to Gillian's story and all of her other incredible guests. Follow along with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates about future episodes. And thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day.